Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to help inspire more people to discover and love the arts. In this guest-curated episode, we welcome members of the Autism Through Cinema Research Project from the Centre for Film and Ethics at Queen Mary, University of London. Autism Through Cinema is a creative and archival investigation into the relationship between autism and film via representation and aesthetic expression. It asks, what happens when we look at films from an autistic point of view? And how did early film help to shape our understanding of the condition? First up, four regular hosts of the Autism Through Cinema podcast reflect on the movies they've been looking at through the autistic lens. You'll hear Georgia Bradburn, Ethan Lyon, John James Laidlow and David Hartley. And be sure to check out the Autism Through Cinema podcast available on all platforms. After that, project leads Professor Janet Harbord and Dr Stephen Eastwood give an overview of the Autism Through Cinema project, the questions it asks and its ambitions for the future. Okay, so uh, let's just start things off, I think, by introducing ourselves. Um, that seems to be the, the regular way of starting this sort of a thing. So uh, we'll start with Georgia, please. Hi, I'm Georgia Bradburn. I'm an undergraduate uh, student at Queen Mary University. Uh, I study film. And I write about films on a blog called The Autistic Film Critic. And as that suggests, I am also autistic. So my interest in film is largely through uh, my own autistic perspective. Thanks, Georgia. Uh, John James. Um, hi, I'm John James Laidlow. Um, I finished my master's in digital documentary at Sussex a few years ago now. Um, I'm also autistic and I have an interest in Film. That's perfect. Thank you, John James. And then finally, last but not least, uh, Ethan. Hi, I'm uh, Ethan Lyon. I am a PhD student at the University of Southampton, but I did my undergrad at Queen Mary uh, back in 2014 to 2017. Uh, I'm also autistic. You'll notice a running theme here. I'm interested primarily in horror films and how they uh, reflect or are analogous to the autistic experience but my interest in film is sort of very wide ranging and encompasses a number of different areas. Thanks, Ethan. Just so people know, I, my name is uh, David Hartley and I'm one of the 
hosts on the Autism Through Cinema podcast. I've just finished my PhD in creative writing at the University of Manchester, where I looked at uh, representations of autism in both literature and film, um, particularly in regards to science fiction and fantasy. So that's me. So I, I am actually the, the lone neurotypical in the room. Um, everybody else is autistic and uh, is bringing their autistic perspective on this conversation and all the conversations that we've had. Just thought I'd put that out there. So we started meeting up and talking about uh, specific films through an autistic lens about a year ago now. I think it was actually over a year ago now. And our recordings have been posted up as a podcast, as the Autism Through Cinema podcast, since about early May of this year, 2021. Um, so far, we've released eight episodes, which cover nine films and one short film. So for the context of those listening, as of today's recording, we've released episodes covering the following films. Uh, Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, then we did a kind of double episode which looked at the film Good Time by the Safdie Brothers and the film Music by Sia. Uh, then we looked at The Rider by Chloe Zhao. Uh, then uh, Pie by Darren Aronofsky. Then the documentary The Gleaners and I by Agnes Varda. Then we had our special guest, Ethan, who, uh, who is back with us today. And we discussed the 1942 horror, horror noir cat people. And then finally, our latest episode, which covers David Lynch. So we're looking uh, in this episode at uh, Eraserhead and his short film, The Grandmother. So what we plan to do in our discussion today is we're going to just talk about some of the, um, the common themes and ideas that we've been um, arriving at during these discussions. Uh, we'll, we'll sort of largely, I think, base our talk today on these films that have already been released, but we may well end up drifting and talking about other films um, and other conversations that we've had. Um, so we'll just we'll just let the conversation flow and see where it goes, I think. So I'm going to start things off quite broadly by just asking, um, by just saying, like, we've been looking at films through this specific autistic lens for, yeah, as I say, just over a year now. Um, have any of you been surprised by anything like have your minds changed about either autism or about film or about the representations of autism on film has there any, been anything particularly surprising or mind-changing about these discussions over the past year or so so as somebody who came to the podcast fairly late i was interested to go back to some of the choices for reference i wasn't able uh, dear viewer or dear listener to go back to all of the uh, uh, podcasts but i went back to some of the ones where i had seen the film or uh, was aware of the film a little bit more so in particular the gleaners and i and pie with pie there was a sense of me going back and going oh yes no this is why i loved that film so much because i am a very big fan of pie and i think it's georgia who says it in the episode quite astutely talk, talks about autistic aesthetic in these sort of the close-ups, the, the, the grainy black and white, the aggressive editing. And uh, it didn't surprise me how much when I saw that film when I was 20 and didn't know I was autistic, when, oh yeah, this makes just a lot of sense to me. And it still is my favourite Aronofsky. Uh, with The Gleaners, it was a little bit more interesting because I'd seen that film, but never considered it in a autistic perspective and that and that sort of conversation around uh special interests and a sort of um narratives that follow sort of a loose meandering thread in the same way that an autistic thought may take many different branches was very very interesting 
And so in those terms, those were new moments to me in as much as, shall we say, it gave a voice to impulses I'd felt when I'd seen them, but couldn't articulate. Uh, for reference, a lot of my work involves me watching a lot older cinema from the 30s to the 60s. And so to see it in newer films was not shocking per se, but certainly pleasant. Uh, it felt a little bit sort of like uh, uh, being welcomed into the fold, so to speak. Um, I think um, related to that, I think just seeing how how many relatable, um, not depictions of autism, but sort of an autistic sensibility or aesthetic we can find in films that that aren't specifically about autistic characters or aren't really even by, as far as we know, autistic filmmakers. Um, it seems like th there's a sense of, of not quite fitting in, of, of alternative ways of thinking and, and moving through the world that we've seen in quite, quite a lot of films that we've discussed now that aren't specifically about autism. So I was quite surprised when we discussed David Lynch's film Eraserhead because I hadn't I haven't seen any David Lynch work before I tried Twin Peaks twice and it was it was just too slow for me and I didn't really get it but then I was really grateful that Georgia suggested we watch Eraserhead because I feel like I finally understood what what it was about and and it kind of made sense to me then so that was a surprise for me. I mean, yeah, I think the thing that I I like about film so much is it essentially sort of holds a sort of mirror to the world that we live in and reinterprets it. And the interesting thing about the films that we've been talking about is the way that even if they are not related to autism in their subject matter or in their, um, in their themes, it really does um, reveal something about its own production or um, its own ideas of what it is to be neurotypical or what it is to not be neurotypical and as autistic people obviously it's a lot easier for us to you know see these things and understand where they come from and and what is sort of informed by this uh, neurotypical sensibility and you mentioned David Lynch John James and I mean David Lynch is one of the reasons I got into film and whilst he is not a uh, autistic filmmaker or not openly autistic I, I don't think he is at all um I think there is something about his films that reveal an autistic sensibility that I can personally relate to that other people might not be able to. But there's something about the aesthetic of the films and the way that the ideas are informed um, by a sort of um, a difference in uh, processing the world and processing senses and things like that. Um, I really connected with it. And through these episodes, I've been able to expand that to... Uh, a lot of other films that I honestly never would have thought uh, would have had uh, would have linked to that. I mean, I, I'm really happy that uh, Ethan brought along Cat People because I had I had never seen it before, and um, I first watched it and I was I was quite confused. I wasn't really sure what to make of it. But um, having had the discussion on the podcast, you know, so many things came to light, and it's quite strange to think that even back. Um, in the day in the 40s and 50s these ideas were coming to fruition through film 
with, without being you know necessarily autistic in their nature but we as autistic people can watch them and get that meaning from it and in, in some cases kind of get some catharsis from it as well um so yeah that's one of the been but that's been one of the most interesting things I've uh, gotten out of these discussions and I really value. I, th I think it's really interesting. Well, firstly, thank you for uh, saying that you enjoyed the cat people. That's That was a, a, a lovely episode to do. It's interesting you mentioned Lynch and I will have to listen to the podcast because Eraserhead is one of my favourite films. I have, um, I it was again, it was one of my first introductions into film was Eraserhead and being nauseated at the prospect of it. But then I, I watched it and was sort of blown away. I think, for the record, I will go on the record as saying is I think Lynch is, at the very least, neurodiverse and possibly autistic from a number of the interviews I've seen with him, from the documentary The Art Life, just from a general perspective. And for me, understanding him as autistic makes his work perhaps less impenetrable for me, it makes it, it provides a roadmap into his films and into his very unique psyche, which I find extremely useful. However, that does provide a really interesting question, which is the dangers of overanalyzing and assigning labels and names to people that perhaps are not justified or are not fair. And for some reason, it brought to mind, you guys obviously watched The Rider, which has a, which has character, which has individuals playing characters with their same name, and the lead's sister is autistic, and I'm not sure whether the actress was autistic. I didn't do enough research into that. Oh, wish she was. Oh, oh, splendid! So now I really need to see that film. And so there was, there were lots of questions in there, I suppose, about sort of the nature of connection. Do we impose certain orders onto things to make a connection? That, that makes films more sort of appreciate, uh, more palatable or more understandable to us. And I say this as somebody whose thesis is effectively just that. But yeah, that's something which I, I which sort of sparks from what you were saying, Georgia. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going back to the Punch Drug Love episode, um, which was the first episode that that came out where we talked about, you know, is it is it ethical to watch a film about a character who isn't explicitly autistic and to assign that label to them. And I think, I think we concluded with, you know, there are things that you can relate to, but actually it is the, um, the aesthetic of the film and the way that the film is made that gives it that feel. But at the same time, you know, Adam Sandler's performance is, is very kind of quite explicitly autistic in a way. Um, and also raises the question of um, should filmmakers have a duty to um, specify um, you know what these who these characters are and what they if they are autistic or not um, or rather saying put love on good time just not even provide like a label and just you know have the blanket disability um, or social awkwardness uh, onto the character which is is problematic in quite a lot of ways but it's interesting because at the same time, you know, once you start to put labels on characters, you start to go into ideas about representation and truthful representation and what this means for the community. Um, so there are a lot of different layers to it. And the podcast has definitely made me think about that um, a lot more, um, just as someone who usually looks at films more for an autistic feel than autistic characters. Because representation is such a is such a tricky thing and it's sometimes very difficult to hit the nail on the head 
And I mean, I mean, Keep the Change, which is a film that is obviously showing uh, at the Barbican program, uh, which we have recorded an episode on. Um, I think the the great thing about that film is that, I mean, all the characters are autistic and played by autistic actors. So those issues aren't there. And it's really about, um, you know, autistic people being free to um, ascend to these levels of performance um, without having to perform their own neurodivergence as neurotypical actors would be doing in these films. You know, the obvious example is like Sia and, you know, Sia's music and Rain Man and all these things. And the great thing about Keep the Change is that um, it's a very authentic portrayal of autism because it is there, it's real autistic people on screen. Um, so it's very refreshing in that sense. The next question I wanted to ask was this, this issue about um, you know, non-autistic actors playing autistic or slash autistic coded characters. And one of the interesting moments for me was when we were talking about the film Good Time, which we sort of discussed um, next to Sia's music in the same episode. And one of the things that came up in Good Time was that there's a character in Good Time who is, yeah, not not labelled as autistic, but certainly is kind of has a is potentially autistic or is, has got some sort of neurodivergence and certainly some sort of learning disorder. Or, um, and that character is played by Benny Safdie, one of the directors. And, and there was a question in there about, you know, and I found this quite a surprising question. Is it ethical? Is it, are there some films where it would be unethical to cast a, an autistic person, especially an autistic person who perhaps also has learning difficulties in a film like Good Time, where they're expected to run around a lot and there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of action and there's like you've got Robert, Robert Pattinson screaming in your face and all this sort of thing. And, and I suddenly thought, yeah, actually, there is, there's, a, there's layers to this. There's, a, there's a question, you know, it's not quite as simple as saying every autistic character needs an autistic actor because actually you've got to think sometimes a little bit about the care around if an individual is being looked after properly. And they did, I think, in good time, the Safdie brothers did consider casting um, an autistic actor in that role and, and decided against it in the end. And I sort of thought maybe that's fair in a sense. So perhaps it depends upon the context. I'll just briefly agree with you there because I was thinking about this last night. Being in, being on a film set in itself, when I directed uh, a couple of short films for my undergrad, it's hard. You've got a you've got bright lights. You've got people crowding around you. It's hot. It's 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 cramped. Uh, I worked on a short film recently, and it was all these things, and it was two days, and it was tremendous fun. But could I imagine doing that for like take on take, hour after hour, day after day? No. I, I think at some point I would lose my mind and just run off the set uh, screaming. Uh, so in some respects, well, I think something like, as I think George mentioned, Keep the Change is a lot more sort of like, um, it's from what I saw of the trailer, it did look like a fun film. It's sort of a light rom-com and it's sort of sweet and quite sort of a little bit fluffy, but in the best way possible. Something like Good Time or a more intense hover film would probably be extremely stressful for a autistic actor you could possibly make it but it would take a lot of um a lot of time effort and money and sometimes i wonder whether producers would be willing to put out for that but that's a different matter yeah i think there's a balance to be had because um i mean obviously the ideal would be that autistic actors play autistic characters so 
in terms of representation and authenticity. But so we we discussed a Disney short called Loop, I think, at, at one point, um, animated film about about a young autistic girl who um, and the actress, the voice actor actress is autistic, but she didn't she couldn't really record in the studio it was too stressful for her so they went out and they recorded at home so that that is an example of you know adapting the production and 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 including her but obviously that disney short is very different to the good time um and i guess it does come down to money and time i mean in an ideal world we'd be able to accommodate everyone but we don't every actor autistic actor but we don't live in an ideal world and I guess it touches on larger issues as well about ideas of disability and whether the social model accounts for everything I mean even if we made the world as accessible as possible which isn't really possible to make the world as accessible to everyone because people have conflicting access needs but um, even if we did that people myself included that would still struggle with with issues yeah I, I definitely agree with that it, it's it's quite difficult sometimes to to maintain the balance of everyone's uh, sort of needs and there's always the question of um you know if if you can't if, if a set is too stressful or if a role is too uh, demanding for um uh, an actor with specific access needs what would be wrong with you know changing and altering these conditions that so that they would suit the uh the actor or whoever is working on set I mean I um I was working on a short film a few weeks ago and it was quite a small production but one of my main things I really wanted to push was um was access on set and whilst I was the only uh neurodiverse person there it was really important to me that people would be able to communicate their needs or be able to say look I need to I need to stop or I need to go because I think there's such a, a toxic idea in in the film industry and in film culture that um, you know you need to kind of power on and ignore all these sort of needs to because you need to the most important thing is the film itself and so people's mental health or people's disabilities are just sort of ignored for the greater product and I think people have started to run with that as oh this is just a byproduct of the industry or a byproduct of film when it really does not have to be. And having known about and worked on sets that really do uh, include people, um, I know for a fact that it is possible. Um, it's just I think a lot of people are unwilling to recognise the fact that people, you know, do need things and they do have the right to ask for help. And it really is all about communication because, like you say, John James, everyone's access needs are difficult. You know, one for example, like me on set, I do thrive on set and I do like working those hours. Whereas Ethan, I know you said you find it a nightmare, but it's the sort of thing that I really enjoy. And so people are always going to have really different experiences and different needs. And that's why it's so important to sort of listen to people and not allocate people their support based on their label or, or how they identify themselves. Um, it's really important to communicate with actors. And I think potentially with the Safety Brothers, I know we had this conversation if they'd really communicated and done what they could with potential uh, autistic actors, it makes sense that they wouldn't put them through that stress. But with a film like Music, um, so Sia cast Maddie Ziegler, who's sort of her muse and who she's used in a lot of projects. And there doesn't really seem to be any, you know, attempt to 
um, reach out and make it accessible. And as a film, it's quite light and fluffy and it doesn't, well, <laughs> in, in its um, tone, it isn't in its reception, you know, but um, you know, it doesn't seem like a production that would be particularly harsh on a neurodivergent person. And what the result was, was a sort of crude, offensive caricature of autistic mannerisms and stimming and things like that, which uh, obviously did not go down well with anyone. Um, so yeah, I think it has to be a nuanced conversation and it needs to be balanced, but I think the key um, is communication with autistic people and allowing autistic people to be part of the conversation because otherwise you make assumptions based on previous assumptions and no one really gets a say. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's worth saying, you know, that um, we don't want this to be a, a, an excuse taken on, taken on by various producers of films say oh it's no film sets are too difficult for autistic actors so we won't hire autistic actors that's not that's not what we're saying we as we as you say georgia that is about thinking about the culture of the production of films and the um and the the wider culture of that yeah i think that's a really good point about like the expectations that the industry just has on everyone to just work to the bone anyway and um and and that's kind of unfair for everyone um regardless of of your neurotype i suppose we don't want producers going, oh, yeah, listen to that episode of that podcast. They say that you don't need to cast autistic actors. That's absolutely not what we're saying. We're saying that we definitely need autistic actors out there. And I think um, the more we progress, the more we're going to find, I think we'll find more and more actors actually coming out as autistic. Quite a lot of the films that we've looked at um, over the past 
year or so have featured these kinds of outsiders, I suppose. So there's the alien in Under the Skin, there's the mathematician Max in Pi, uh, Henry in Eraserhead is effectively a, a kind of an outsider, Irena in Cat People, and some of the various people that Agnes Varda meets in her documentary, The Gleaners and I. Um, so one of the things I've been I've been thinking about this a little bit because I sometimes worry about suggesting that autistic people are outsiders because it sort of feels like quite a dehumanizing thing to say in some ways. Um, but then again, these films have helped us to explore that outsider's perspective um, and how that perspective can kind of bring insight and kind of new knowledge and joy and in new interesting things. So I don't know, I, I just wondered, I wondered what you guys think about this as the, um, this issue of kind of the outsider and the outsider's perspective. I mean, personally, I'm quite comfortable with being an outsider. <laughs> I always like, um, but I do, I do understand what you're saying. And I, do, I think the reason these people are outsiders is not because they, they cannot exist in society and in, in and socially, it's not, it's not because there's something, you know, um, wrong with them that they have to be, they have to exist out of, outside of um, society. It's because the way, the way that the world is set up at the moment, we, we, we won't accept these, these people into our society and we won't accept what they have to say because it might, it might make, make, people uncomfortable um, or might make people, it might expose truths that people just don't want to look at. Um, so you mentioned the, the Gleaners and I by Agnes Varda and I was thinking, thinking about that guy in the film that she meets that has, um, he always wears rubber boots and he walks around the town um, getting all of his uh, food from bins, um, sort of big industrial bins that, that you know the food hasn't expired and he he points out i mean the ridiculousness of of how how much we're destroying the planet and how much waste food we're throwing away quite a few people doing that in that film i mean that's what it's about really and um and i guess if that if that person and if that truth was was brought into the into the Old, it would it would destabilize a lot of the the facade that people use to just get by the outsider I don't I don't think it's an issue with the outsider it's more an issue with the people that feel uncomfortable I pretty much completely agree with John James actually I think that in some respects if these characters are outsiders it's because the system which they live in has almost they have chosen to become outsiders from a system that doesn't accept them uh, for various reasons. Um, and, I, and I also happen to think that uh, when John James talks about uh, it perhaps reveals truths that we're perhaps, some people just don't want to listen to. I also very much agree with that because I think it, I, I think sometimes having to, I think humanity has perhaps a desire to simply fall back into old, comfortable ways the, the the path of least resistance and making allowances for the disabled sometimes is too much of a uh, it feels like too much of an effort for some people so i certainly think that that it would rather be forgotten and buried which sounds slightly conspiratorial but at the same time i'm 
I can I can I can understand it in some respects, but still it it, it bloody hurts nonetheless. So when I do watch films where there are outsider characters, I often feel a lot more connected to them uh, because just simply of the times I have felt like a, a an outsider. And while that loneliness can be really quite sort of emptying and hollowing and sad, there's also perhaps something faintly triumphant about feeling connected to a character who is going through something analogous to what I feel. Yeah, 100% uh, agree on all of those things. And I also think, in a way, um, it, it, I mean, it is about characters who are outsiders, but it's also about insiders as well. And I, I'm thinking about, um, so we've recorded a podcast on uh, Sally Potter's Orlando, which is my favourite film. And um, the um, idea behind discussing that was the idea of someone who is an outsider who is not really connected to everything that's going on, but has a very unique perspective on the uh, events that are going on. And sometimes as a narrative, neurodiverse person, as an autistic person, I feel like I am an insider um, gaining information about uh, a world that I'm not, I don't always feel included in, but I, I can gain some really unique insight on. And I, um, I do value that perspective. I mean, like you say, it is very isolating um, to to be sort of cast out of this structure of neurotypicality that we are inevitably in. Um, but for me, I mean, as a filmmaker, it does provide me with something unique to work from, a unique perspective that, um, well, I say unique, but there's so many autistic people out there, but um, something that isn't embraced by the norm as much as perhaps it could be. Um, and so um, I think the reason I resonate with films like Orlando or even the films that we've discussed, like A Razorhead and Pi, um, you know, is, is like you say, Ethan, is you, you see representation and you feel aligned to that character and it's a sense of catharsis. Um, and it feels good to sort of be recognised, maybe not directly, but um, as someone who um, is sort of aligned with an invisible audience um, who you can kind of share these secrets about um, neurotypicality with. I do feel like that sometimes, and I suppose that's sort of a sugar-coated way of seeing it, but uh, it does help to uh, counteract the loneliness sometimes of being autistic in the world that we live in. I think near the beginning of the discussion, Georgia brought up that um, these films might act as a mirror to 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 us and uh, or a way of reflecting back to us certain things. I wonder if the these um these outsider type characters reflect back sort of um reflect back to society as well. I'm thinking of um Eraserhead again and and you know the dinner scene um and I guess David Lynch's Thing, as far as I know, I've only seen a couple of his films now, but it's like exposing the absurdity of of normality and society, and and it, I mean that's something that I can really identify with. Is like people just saying, "Oh, this is this is how we do it," and then you're like, "Why? That's silly." Yeah, I think um, on when we were talking about a razorhead on the podcast, um, Alex, who is also a uh, a contributor on the podcast 
brought up a uh, Stuart Hall lecture where he mentioned the idea of uh, matter out of place, which is in that uh, con- in, in context in that lecture is related to race studies. But um, an interesting way to relate that to this is, um, so for example, in a razorhead, there's a lot of matter that is in places that it should not be. So there are plants sort of growing inside and in Henry's room, there's sort of dirt on the floor and everything is sort of growing in the wrong places. And um, I mean, even the phrase matter out of place is something that I um, definitely resonate with um, because it feels like there are so many rules and so many structures um, that are sort of permeate the, the world that we live in. And one of my key interests, especially someone who is, um, you know, a huge David Lynch fan, is the idea of sort of exposing that grittiness beneath the surface of uh, of neurotypicality of what we show to the world, and show not even autistic people, but everyone's sort of inner um, horrors and complexities, um, which are usually sort of hidden, and we start to see things that are in places that they shouldn't be. Um, or shouldn't be according to these standards. I think for me, that's why that's sort of the crux of why Lynch is so important to me because it really does deconstruct these ideas of normality. All right, so let's bring this back to, um, I think to sort of film films and cinematic techniques. So we, we talk a lot about the kind of expression of autism as a uh, through kind of cinematic technique. So can we suggest that there is such thing as a as a as an autistic film aesthetic, so to speak? I'll go so far as to say that I think there are techniques and structures that resonate more with autistic viewers. But as for a concrete aesthetic, I would be wary of saying that that exists. In my mind, if you were to ask whether an autistic, if you were to, to want to clearly define an autistic film aesthetic, firstly, part of me would actually have to say it may well come from an autistic director themselves, uh, in as much as we subscribe to the classical auteur notion that a film is the director's vision, although even that is fraught with problems. And secondly, as uh, George sort of briefly brought up a little bit um, earlier, uh, there's always a sort of a bit of a push-pull between the idea of having a very unique individual perception of the world and then a greater autistic perception of the world. My view of it is it's a little bit like a kaleidoscope where there are multiple different viewpoints all existing within the same space. But if you turn it enough, there are enough overlapping elements to create some sort of picture, uh, which in, to my mind means that there will be, there may be autistic filmmakers who are able to create an, uh, a, an aesthetic which they relate to and a number of autistic people relate to, but then again, there may also, but that also leaves their open room for other autistic people to go, well, no, I don't, I don't connect with this for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, yeah, I think this is a, this is a conversation that sort of, crops up within you know every sort of film movement that revolves around a sort of a group um i'm thinking especially about about uh, queer theory which sort of emerged in the 80s and 90s and there's a quote from um part of a who says that um 
filmmakers and critics have a tendency to create an essentialist so-called authentic queer gaze and I think it applies here as well especially because it's, it's so important to acknowledge the fact that not everyone's experience is going to be the same as with queerness autism is so different for each autistic person not just because it depends on your class or your race or where you come from and your gender but also like neurologically you know one autistic person is going to be so different from the next in terms of how they experience the world and I think too I think there's there are definitely like you say Ethan there is definitely techniques that sort of um, simulate elements of sensory experiences and I think for me that's one of the great things about film because you can simulate so many feelings um, through sound and through visuals um, but at the same time if you were to suggest you know this is an autistic film um, even if it was by a autistic director whilst that is their experience with the world it's not any an authentic autistic gaze and such a thing I don't think could exist because our experiences are so different and so diverse so I think I think it can be can be discussed in terms of um subjective experiences especially if the director is autistic and individual autistic people but yeah we definitely do have to be careful in applying that to sort of a movement or a genre of films as an aesthetic I guess it it comes back to that um quote from Stephen Shaw that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism because, I mean, we we are all so different, and I mean, so our aesthetic influences and tastes are going to be radically different, dependent not just on other you know intersectional qualities such as race and class and gender and sexuality, but um, but just on how. What, what we're interested in, what where we grew up, you know, what what me what other media we've consumed, and um, so I'm not sure that, yeah, like Georgia said, I'm not sure that you know one one autistic or it, you know even a a unified autistic aesthetic can exist, but there definitely can be, you know signifiers through sensibility and 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 technique and and other things that that can allow us to identify with the film i think i think that was exactly the answer i was expecting from that question um i think you're right and it's interesting how thinking of films in from an autistic perspective even though we we do, we have hit upon various scenes in various films, particularly in Punch Drunk Love, I think, and particularly in Pi, um, where there is a, you know, you, you've all kind of reacted with enthusiasm about particular moments when that film saying, you know, this is what it feels like to have these, uh, to have a sensory overload or to have a, a situation like this. And that gets quite exciting, but you're right in terms of like, generalizing that out to a general aesthetic doesn't feel like it works necessarily and yet there is still something about the way in which films these sorts of films have been constructed perhaps from that outsider's perspective yeah there are some techniques there are some uh, constructions of scenes that 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 seem to correlate really well and really meaningfully in ways that other other like um, forms of art and forms of media don't seem to be able to quite 
reach to there's something about the the totality of film i think that manages to do that the scene in particular i'm thinking about in punch drunk love is um the one where there's just sort of chaos going on in the warehouse constantly and things forklift trucks are crashing into walls while phones are ringing and uh, Barry uh, Adam Sandler's character is trying to have a conversation with about three different people at the same time and the lights are flickering and it's like that when I when we were talking about that particular scene I thought okay yeah this is a real evocation of what it can be like I, uh, what it must be like for um, you know for overwhelm to take place yeah go on Ethan it's interesting you mentioned Punch Drunk Love because I didn't listen to that episode and I've not seen that film since I was 17 there was one scene in that film which has always stuck with me. And it's not that scene. It's earlier in the film where Barry goes to see his sisters and they spend most of the meeting of that thing just making so much fun of him, mocking him, being profoundly cruel to him. And he can't respond to it because, well, it's, it's his sisters and they've always got the upper hand. And the only thing he can do is to smash that glass window and it just breaks and it ends on the, the sisters sort of screaming, what have you done? And I was thinking about why is that so memorable to me? And I feel like that in some respects in itself is a quietly autistic scene in as much as it's that sort of inability, for me anyway, it resonated very strongly with me, especially when I was very angry as a 17-year-old, but not very good at uh, expressing it for a number of reasons. Um, that felt very relatable in the terms of it was sort of that burst of emotion and the desire to do something to to sort of verbalize or visualize your sort of level of distress and i think that also comes to why film more than say literature or a, a piece of static art is powerful for the autistic individual because it is we see other people fulfilling a fantasy in some respects they are people on screen are in some ways either liberated or inhibited to do an action in a certain way that we would do. And everybody has this in some way, shape or form when we watch a film. I feel like I think a lot of people would like to say, you know, that they want to be, the, 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 the they relate to the superhero or they, they want to be James Bond. But I think, uh, in theory, this is just a wild speculation. But I think that there is something there as well to watch somebody like Barry do the acts that we all know would just get us into terrible, terrible trouble. Something kind of liberating and exciting about it and something sort of heartwarming as well as that we feel like, yeah, you did that. Now I don't need to. Um, I think as well that that leads on to some, something I've been thinking about, about how, how just clumsy... Um, languages like most I'm thinking mostly about verbal but also like just you know trying to communicate through writing like quite often I just can't get my words out in the right way or there isn't quite the I mean language is clumsy for all people I mean that these like signifiers to something abstract that you can't quite you know unless we're telepaths we couldn't quite put in <laughs> communicate properly but I think ci cinema is like is so exciting because you can you can create such a such a sensory like a full evocative world and, and these characters that can really 
really express what you're thinking in depth or express express sensibilities or thoughts or like Ethan said like fantasies or or fears or anything you know you can express all that through through another reality really that you create rather than just trying to trying to use words all the time yeah one of my uh, key interests I suppose when I'm when I'm watching films or um, when, whenever I do write about films which is becoming uh, less and less frequent as my university work uh, builds but um, yeah one of my key interests is um, around meltdown and how films may inadvertently sort of simulate my own personal experience of meltdown because for me it's sort of the most intense um, experienced intense traumatic experience that um, I can go through um, and a sort of cathartic way of um, using that I suppose is to translate that feeling uh, to a visual or audible medium um, and so I have I constantly sort of curate a list of films or scenes from films that I personally feel um, reflect this for me and one um, that I want to talk about is uh, in Mulholland Drive which is again showing at the Barbican season um, and it's towards the end of the film where they're sort of all at a dinner party and um, Betty's sort of looking and all these people are kind of talk, um, talking about her and betraying her and plotting against her and then the sort of scene where these old people sort of chase her down a corridor and it ends with this huge kind of gunshot as she you know ends her life but in a rather than in a um, scripted or um, narrative sense it's more in the way that it's made that I watched when I was when I first watched it when I was about 16 and I thought you know this is my experience it's the it's the chaos and the um, insecurity and the sounds and the the intense colors or the intense lack of color um, that really epitomize what I go through um, and while some people will definitely find that more traumatic to watch a sort of a reminder of their own experience I personally see it as something that really helps me and especially that scene that you mentioned David from Punch Drunk Love that's another one that I always go back to because I remember watching and thinking this is my experience of being just totally overwhelmed and experience all these negative emotions at once um, and so yeah, as we said, whilst there isn't really a, a like a overarching autistic aesthetic, um, there are things that filmmakers can do, which I think is really amazing, that can really strongly uh, reflect an experience that can't really be told in words, and that's why sort of film is so is so powerful in that sense, especially to autistic people, because it can really translate that experience and make people understand more what it is like without having to pander to the whole oh we need to understand autistic people in order to accept them because you know that's obviously not a great thing it's a way for us as autistic people to relate not relate but to translate our experiences um into something into art as well lovely uh well 
thank you very much everyone i think that's probably a nice point in which to to close our conversation uh, and thank you very much for listening and thanks to the guests and uh, we'll see you all again soon that was georgia bradburn ethan lyon john james laidlow and david hartley from the autism through cinema podcast and now over to janet and stephen as they share more about the research project My first question for Stephen, how do autism and cinema go together? What's our thinking here? Well, I suppose that gets us into problems about what we think the cinema is or can be, because I would say instinctively that the cinema in its kind of popular form probably doesn't go very well uh, with autistic sensibilities, because I think the cinema has evolved over the 130 years or so of its existence to assume a neurotypicality. And I think that's one of the essential kind of focuses of our project is to think, rethink the cinema through uh, neurodivergent perspectives and forms. So I would say that the cinema has done a disservice to uh, autistic being in the world, but I think it has the potential to embrace those differences and those different perspectives and the cinema can change through autism. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. I'm just wondering what you mean by a neurotypical version of cinema. I mean, I, I, I think that's very true. And I think early cinema had far more possibilities uh, for, for a kind of autistic apprehension of the world. The early cinema, in fact, embraced the world in a in quite an autistic way a sensitivity to patterns to sensory input to relationships that weren't focused around people but could be around things or the natural world creatures non-human creatures um, and all of those sorts of things have been minimized I think through the decades of the 20th century, sort of with the highlight of Hollywood, with this focus around human drama and, and interiority. How do, how, do people, how do people work each other out? That's my version of, of, of neurotypicality, I suppose, in the cinema, is people trying to, characters trying to work out what's going on in the head of someone else. And you do that through facial expression. You know, the audience is invited to think about what that person or speculate what that person's thinking and work out what that might mean in the context of this drama. And so much of our cinema seems to be based on that. Um, is is an, that what you're thinking of? Yeah, that's an economy, isn't it? It's an economy of how people conduct themselves towards each other within the screen, within the frame. And it's an economy of how we are supposed to infer meanings and read the intentions of the people on the screen. And that's how cinema, I think, became a commodity. And I, I say it assumes a neurotypicality. I don't think that the cinema is neurotypical, but I think it kind of assumes that kind of shorthand of understanding. Um, mm. And I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. If you look at early cinema and even um, pre-cinema, like pre-cinema forms like the zoetrope, which is uh, the, creating animation from still images. And there's a pleasure in watching uh, repetitive movements and, and recur recurrence. And uh, my understanding of even the early kind of Lumiere Brothers kind of actualities is that people would go back and see them three, four, five times because they wanted to see more of what was in the background or to like look at that tree. 
And so that kind of interest in the whole frame and that interest in sort of repeat viewing got taken out of the transaction and the economy of the cinema. And I think that different perspectives um, got kind of marginalized because they didn't fit into that, um, that, that, that shorthand. So you're, you're part of the research is thinking about filmmaking f- sort of fueled by those ideas and you're working with um, a neuro collective. Can you, can you talk a bit about your, your project and how you're working with them? Yes, yeah, so th- that aspect of the research project is much more about co-creation and about rethinking who gets to create representations and how. And, and, you know, we started this conversation talking about misrepresentations and the cinema being kind of lazy and stereotypical. And that's often because it doesn't consult and it doesn't include. It speaks for. And I think we're both aware of nothing about us without us kind of politic that sits at the heart of, of the neurodiverse community. And so the process is to work with a collective, the Neurocultures Collective, seven autistic artists to co-create a feature film and a multi-screen gallery artwork and to bring in some of the sort of keen interests and hyper-focus and, and uh, I suppose forms that the group wants to realise that they think the cinema hasn't necessarily explored. And, you know, you've already commented on this idea of a cinema which is much more about dynamics and flow or a fascination with um, with backgrounds or with objects or just thinking beyond the locus of the human face and the, the kind of inferential body or the story or the character as the kind of like the... The, uh, this kind of assumed centre of what the cinema should be. Like, should, does the human subject even need to be the thing that we track through the screen? So that these are some of the things we're looking at. But I know, Janet, that you also, because our early conversations came, had to do with gesture and the body and how the cinema can constrain bodies and kind of, and, and, and doesn't allow for certain kinds of movements. Um, we're talking about sort of popular cinema and, and sort of narrative cinema, but you've been looking at the way that uh, the, the film industry in its kind of in its infancy worked with um, the scientific and medical community, and those kinds of industries came together to create what became the medical film. And I, I'm wondering how autism fits into what what the medical film was and is. Mm. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a long, it's a long history, and in some ways, you know, I'm in reading that history. I'm repositioning autism back within a scientific paradigm, and it makes me realise how how much we view autism today through science and medicine and intervention still. Um, so I guess my approach as a, as a film archaeologist is to think we can only understand the present if if we go back to the past, and the past is very much alive in the present. And so I'm, I'm thinking about the way in which looking at medical films during the course of the 20th century, that there's this, this the origin of testing and observation comes with film, comes very heavily with film at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. So at the origins of cinema, it, you know, it, it, in one room, there's, there's the cinema, there's the black box, there's entertainment. In another room, there's the white box and there's, there's testing and a laboratory. 
And, and I'm looking for the connections between those things. And it is there in body language. I mean, early actors had to be trained um, and there was a lot of humor in the body that couldn't be controlled, that was uh, just gesturing, gesticulating in ways that were, that were uh, you know, comedic because they didn't make sense or they were misfiring in a certain situation. Um, but that becomes, you know, written out of cinema increasingly when sound comes in 1927 and, you know, we become more focused on script. Um, but it's there, it's there at the beginning. And I, I guess what I'm tracing in, in the work that I'm doing is uh, a, a history um, in which archaeology uncovers those sort of secret relationships, not only of the power that's, in, that's, that's being operated on, on those people who are in uh, the laboratories and in testing situations, but also um, in terms of, of cinema, that in some ways we're, we're in sitting in cinema, the neuro, so-called neurotypical audience, who is the audience being addressed, I would argue, um, is also being trained in that environment, being, being trained to watch faces, to infer, to understand human communication through quite a limited uh, uh, prism. You know, we, we, we are taught to, to screen out things like stimming, like re repetitious body movements. They don't actually get, it, get to make it into film, into representation um, beyond the, the kind of early comedies of early cinema. Um, so, yeah, we, I think we also need to be aware through the history of cinema that it, it's, it's not only power operating through an exclusion, but there's power operating and training us in a quite a positive way to only recognise certain things and to screen out other, other things. Yeah, I completely agree. I think all too often we can make sort of textual analysis of, you know, and there's excellent work from Stuart Murray and others about stereotyping and the problems of kind of lazy uh, representations and characters in, in kind of popular culture. But I think we can also think much more broadly about the way that the cinema um, thinks about its shot structures, its chronologies, the way that it can create compositions around the human body as, all, uh, as, as not the only possibility for the form. And I think that was what was so exciting when we ran um, these series of development workshops at the at kind of it was a year or two ago now, wasn't it? The earlier part of the project, where we started to kind of think about uh, well, putting the cinema under the microscope to some extent. So it's not just um, you know the cinema puts scrutinizes autism, but what if autism scrutinizes the cinema? What can mm. what, what do we what 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 do we see by by looking at the cinema through that kind of lens? And I really enjoyed the the workshops that involved eye tracking software, which is commonly used to kind of think about autistic perspectives, but actually using the software in a kind of re reverse engineered sense to to make us think about how the cinema is guiding how we see and where we look. Because I think there's something that you know that there's something that transcends uh, um, binaries of neurotypical and neurodivergent within the project, which is to think about how the cinema can, can you know can can grow. The film season Autism and Cinema: An Exploration of Neurodiversity takes place in the Barbican Cinemas from 16th to 28th of September. Find out more and book your tickets on the Barbican website.
Thanks for listening to Nothing Concrete and this special episode from Autism Through Cinema. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAR, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.